how do you deal with post-adventure blues and having to come back to normality? You know that feeling when you return from a long, muddy run? One of those where you get so lost that it goes on for an hour longer than intended and becomes a bit of an epic. Eventually, you find your way home, get warm again, and then fall into the soft, welcoming embrace of your sofa with a bucket of tea, a loaf of toast, and test match special on the radio. You've earned the right to lie on your sofa. You replay the satisfying memories from the run. You're proud of yourself, but you feel absolutely no compulsion to get up and run any further. This is what coming home from an adventure feels like. It is delicious. The long dreamed of holy trinity of hot shower, cold beer and soft bed never ceases to feel absurdly wonderful. The trouble is that the gloss soon fades. For many years, I held on to the false hope that just one more adventure, a really big one, was all I needed to at last heave Excalibur from the stone, scratch the itch, feel content forever and never need to go away again. Alas, not yet. And I suspect, not ever. Embarking on an adventure is like opening Pandora's box. A new world of possibilities bursts forth. For the rest of your life, you'll have new benchmarks for words like excitement, endeavour, simplicity and purpose. Ordinary life afterwards can be stifling and frustrating by comparison. Nobody knows the distant places you've returned from. Nobody understands. Nobody can empathise. Nobody cares. Which I understand. Hang on, you're moaning because you've just been away in paradise having a lovely time. So all this sometimes leaves you a step removed from the people in your life, out of sync and distant. Too often I compare my average days to the salad days of my big adventures. I sometimes find parts of normal life almost too boring, too banal to bear after tasting the freedom of solitude, the intensity of trust and companionship, the beauty and self-examination of wild landscapes, the abundance of time and space, the focused purpose of striving for a goal, the intense appreciation of luxury that is a warm sleeping bag in a frozen tent or a cold mountain stream on a hot day, the moments of living on my wits, the adrenaline and terror of sinew-straining effort, and the spoon-licking frugality of expedition rations, or the heady abundance of camping beneath a laden wild avocado tree. Seen through adventure's dazzling prism, my everyday highs, fitness, prospects, freedom and independence, my daily levels of contentment and satisfaction all struggle to live up to those high-water marks. The problem is exacerbated by the phenomenon of the focusing illusion, which tends to forget all the boring, horrible parts of expeditions and remember only the high points. Rolf Debelli writes in The Art of the Good Life about the trap of the remembering self, running barefoot across the USA or conquering Everest in record time can only be considered wonderful experiences in retrospect. At the time, They're torture. Extreme sports feed memory at the cost of moment-by-moment happiness. 
Having worked so hard during the adventure and devoted such energy towards one simple but not easy goal, it can feel disjointed to cross the finish line, stop abruptly, have a cup of tea and then think, now what? The lack of direction can lead to a feeling of aimless drift. The tangled web of complicated commitments and tasks that make up real life may feel more difficult and less self-gratifying than the one mad mission you had been focused on. Fulfilling an ambition and achieving something that feels personally meaningful does not necessarily guarantee lifelong contentment. The crux of the issue is often that no matter where you go, there you are. Running or cycling away is not going to resolve that. Any problems you run away from are still here, waiting for you, and all the more vexing for remaining unsolved. Going off into the yonder to slay a dragon of an expedition does not mean that anything or anyone is different when you wake up back home in your bed. On Desert Island Discs, cyclist Sir Bradley Wiggins talked about the come-down after winning the Tour de France or Olympic gold. He says, I'd achieved this thing, and it was like, what do I do now? It doesn't feel how I thought it was going to feel. One of the reasons I began travelling the world was because I was disillusioned with life and thought there must be more to it. This restlessness has driven generations of men and women to achieve bold and marvellous deeds. But when I'm here, I want to be there. Whilst away on an expedition once, I wrote this in my diary. I missed many things, even after so long away from home. Family, friends, a girlfriend and familiarity. To know where I would sleep each night. To have food in the fridge, an income, beans on toast, barefoot breakfasts, Saturday mornings and sport on TV. Cereal, toast, newspapers. Knowing how the remote control works. The postman, salad, toast, coffee, ice cream, running through the rain across the moors football matches, mud and friendship, and vicarious hopes and fears on the terraces, cricket, summer evenings, and warm walks home from the pub in the dark, text messaging a meeting point, laughing about the night before. I miss all that. But I will miss all this so much more. Whilst busking across Spain, I lay down for a siesta one afternoon on a shaded wooden bench in a cobbled plaza, my toes tickled by geraniums in a window box. I looked up at the blue sky and thought to myself, this is the happiest I've been in many years. The happiness came not simply from being on a cracking adventure. It came from being on a cracking adventure whilst also realising that my life at home was beautiful too. I was, for once, not running, not seeking something better. I was just lying on a bench on a Sunday afternoon and I was happy. <laughs> Adventurous. We may look and dress like bums. We do many things that bums do and we wish that we were bums. But actually, most of us who go off in pursuit of the expedition life are very unlike bums. We are hardworking, driven, ambitious and conscientious like good civil servants. Yet we are also restless impatient and somewhat full of ourselves. If these are the traits that pushed you out the door in the first place, 
You're unlikely to fare well if you return from your adventure, pull on a suit and tie, and take yourself off to be a civil servant with your fingers crossed that real life's going to work out just fine now. If you want an interesting life, go on a huge adventure. But I wouldn't necessarily advocate that path if you're looking for peace or to solve the problems in your life. As the old curse cautions, may you live in interesting times. I know that not every adventurer feels this way, and I admire those who switch successfully between the different compartments of their lives. There are many similar iterations of my experiences, though, told online by many other adventurers, including Anna McNuff, Bo Miles, Ben Saunders, Cal Major, Dave Cornthwaite, Emily Chappell, Julia Burring and Sarah Ooten. I've collated their accounts into one blog post on my website, www.alistumphreys.com dealing hyphen finishing hyphen big hyphen expedition. Being a working adventurer does not help with the pursuit of peace after adventures. If, for example, I became a farmer, I suspect that the memories of my adventures could rest as happy ornaments on the mantelpiece of my mind whilst I busied myself with the challenges and goals of my new identity. I would not be so bound to who I used to be. But because I tell the same tales time and again to pay the bills, there's no closure to a story, only dilution and simplification. My present and future are constantly held up in comparison to my past. But if those are the problems I face, what about some solutions to life's problems after adventures? Solutions are more interesting than problems. More than anything else, micro-adventures have been the solution to my post-adventure blues. For the adventures themselves and the brief doses of wildness and adventure, certainly, but also for teaching me to choose to see positives and opportunities in every situation and find a dose of adventure wherever I look. If you don't have time to sleep on a hill, in which case, by the way, you need to make time to sleep on two hills, then a lunchtime tree climb is a small step in the same direction as crossing a glacier in Iceland. It's still doing something physical, offline, and connecting with nature under the wide and wild sky. The regular, short, local, cheap micro-adventures I squeeze around the busy rhythm of my ordinary life have often restored my soul over the past decade. They help me temper my expectations for daily life and encourage me to savour where I am right now. My past is nothing but memories and pictures in my mind. My future nothing but hopes and imaginary visions. Right here, right now, is all that I ever genuinely have. I should therefore treasure it. After jotting down these thoughts on a village bench under a large beech tree somewhere on the outskirts of London, I finished my coffee, put away my notebook, and climbed back on my bike to ride home. I plugged in my earphones and hit shuffle. Music has the surgical knack of slicing through your memories to precise moments in your life. The first song that came on was Weak Become Heroes by The Streets. Whoosh! I'm suddenly back under a bridge, somewhere in central Japan, sheltering from the rain. I'm soaked to the bone, still skinny and weary from a winter in Siberia. Nothing but grey concrete, 
pylons, the neon lights of indecipherable Japanese convenience store signs. I sigh, shiver and plug in my earphones. I rarely listened to music back then. I only had a dozen mini-discs to choose from and chances to recharge my batteries were rare. So I only allowed myself the escapist delight of music when I was either really happy or really struggling. I click in the new mini-disc I'd been given in Tokyo, press play and begin to ride. As always, my pace picks up with the beat, my weariness forgotten as I spin the pedals automatically. I'm riding a quiet country road through endless rice fields, zipping through puddles under gloomy skies. The storytelling cleverness of A Grand Don't Come For Free transfixes me. The drama of Mike and Simone and his missing thousand quid unfolds as I pelt through the rain, grinning and whooping at the sheer bloody wonder of being on the far side of the world and free as a bird. I have no idea where I'll sleep tonight. My tent is still wet from yesterday. I'll be damp again tonight. I'm sick of instant noodles and I can't read a single word of the local language. Yet still, what a magical privilege a long adventure is. Now, years later, middle-aged and homeward bound on this cold blue spring day in England, I understand that the joys of my past adventures still smoulder within me. They bring me happiness when memories like this reappear. Music and bikes and the freedom of the open road will always fill my soul with joy. Even here, just an hour or two's ride from home and hurrying to get back in time for the school run. I smile, sing out loud and hammer homewards, swerving around broken bottles and empty cans with weak become heroes playing in my ears. It's a song recalling the dizzy heights of younger years and the exaggerated polish of your unique and precious memories. For Mike Skinner of the streets, that meant everyday antics and mid-90s rave culture. For me, it's instant noodles in damp tents. I'm living the second half of the song these days. Years have gone by and we're older, looking back. My life's been up and down since those days, but mirroring the song, I've ended feeling that the stars have aligned. We all smile and we all sing. These can be good times too, even without my big expeditions of old. They are good times made even better by my Pandora's box stuffed with memories. Quick question. How are you? I'm okay, thank you. I'm lean and active and in good health. I'm doing a relatively decent job of accepting what I cannot alter, being grateful for all the good things, being brave enough to change what I can and keeping busy with projects that excite me. How are you? Question. Do you think in the long term or the short term? In terms of my career, I've always been comfortable knowing that it takes years to grow and establish things. Most of the sales of a book will come in the long tail of years to come, rather than in the breathless brief spike of launch week. But in terms of getting on with projects, I take a very short-term approach. If I have a good idea, I want to begin it immediately, launch straight in and see how it goes, rather than doing any long-term planning and weighing up the pros and cons. Perhaps this means I'm impatient but persistent. 
I do most of my planning year by year. I tend to pick a project and a book to tackle over the course of a year. In my final week in the shed, I always do an annual review before shutting my laptop for the Christmas holiday. If you search online, you'll find templates that guide you through the process of doing an annual review. I first got the idea from Chris Gillibo's website. I also do what Tim Ferriss calls a past year review to help clarify my thinking. I blitz my email inbox to empty it with every message either answered or deleted. I finish all my outstanding tasks, then sit down in my shed for two or three days with a notebook, lots of coffee and no internet. I reflect on the year that's passed and make plans for the year to come. I think in terms of categories for my life, writing, speaking, adventures, fitness, personal, etc. I brainstorm how each of these categories has gone this year and what I'd like to achieve next year. After pages and pages of scribbling and reflection, I try to condense everything into a concrete, workable plan ready for me to launch into in the new year. I also email all my conclusions to myself using Gmail's schedule send function so that they'll pop into my inbox next December when it's interesting to look over them once again and see how I fared. I find the whole thing a very helpful process. I suspect that whether this all sounds like long-term or short-term planning will depend on how you approach your own life. Quick question. Have your trips made you more balanced in how you see yourself? Travelling is a brilliant way of teaching you about the world and yourself. Your strengths, weaknesses, biases, preconceptions and deeper motives and priorities. I am neither as pathetic nor as tough as I once thought I was. It is a fine education. 